Thank you, Matt. I'd like to welcome everyone here tonight. Uh, it was good to sing Amazing Grace. That song never never grows old. Um, maybe, I don't know, Matt, would it be possible to close with Amazing Grace? Can we get that set up and put the guys in the back in a tizzy? But uh, I think that would be a very appropriate way to, to close uh, tonight if we could to do that. I'd like to welcome you all here, and uh, it's good to be in the, here in the middle of the week in the very warm fall, but it's, it's still a blessing. We've been going through the doctrines of grace in this series, and there hasn't been a lot of time for interaction, but we have a, a, a number up here. James is going to put it up for us. That's going to be our question line, and uh, you can do this anonymously. You know, if you have questions, you've been afraid to ask. Uh, were you in church Sunday? It is so nice to see you. You, yeah, you don't look like a ghost. You, I'm going to pinch you, but praise the Lord! It's grace to see you here. So, somebody said you were here. I go, no, she wasn't, but she was. So, very good. Shelley is back, so it's great to have her back from the dead. So, um, this number is a text line. So, you know, we've talked a lot of doctrine over the last several weeks. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. There is no doubt questions. You know, these doctrines, uh, I forget because they took me years to understand, honestly. And you know, it's almost incredibly naive if you've not been exposed to these before to just get them in a week and like, oh, I, I got it. Okay, yeah, let's go on. I mean, you have to, and questions, and you have to work your way through these. So if you have some questions, some things that don't make sense or um, whatever, text us on this line. Now, I want you to know this line is a generic line. Um, Don't, you know, like if you have a serious prayer request or you really need to get a hold of me, that's not the number to get a hold of me because it it might sit there for a little bit, okay? But on on the last one, we're going to do this week, we're going to do Perseverance of the Saints, and then last week we're going to wrap it up, kind of just the implications of the doctrines, what they mean. But if there are some questions, we'll try to address it at that time. So please feel free to use that. It's a a great way and and safe. No one's going to track you down or send you any advertisements, or at least not from our end. So um, anything like that. So keep that number handy, and if there are some questions, we'll deal with those on... um, on the last session in a couple of weeks. So the doctrines of grace, they are the doctrines concerning our salvation. That's what these doctrines are about. There are a lot of doctrines in the Bible, but these in particular are about our salvation. Okay, And the doctrines about our salvation demonstrate that our salvation is all grace. It's just, it's all a mighty, wonderful work of God. So that those who love our salvation, we say, Lord, you're magnified. You're great, what you have done. And you know, that's the way, you know, I, I don't know of any Christian that magnifies themselves in their salvation. Like, man, I'm great. No one does that. We're all, we all thank God, but a lot of people just don't realize how much they need to thank God for, how amazing God's grace is. You can sing amazing grace and kind of think it's amazing, but when you begin to understand the doctrines of grace, you, this is amazing grace. Another way to think of these doctrines, and we did this one year in a series in the foundation, we called it the foundations of love. The Bible says that as believers, God loves us. Well, how does God love us? 
Well, through the doctrines of grace, you understand how God loves you. I I brought that up under unconditional election. I said, you are special. When you read the New Testament, you get the idea that a Christian is special. Well, how special? How loved of God are you? The doctrines of grace tell us how we know we are loved by God. We, We do not know we're loved by God because of our circumstances. Some of you are going through very difficult circumstances right now. And if you were judging your circumstances on the basis of God's love, you'd say, God must not love me because this is not pretty. But that's not how we know God loves us. It's not on our bank account. We tend to think, oh, God blesses those people. If you have a lot of money, man, God loves you. But that's not how you know God loves you. In fact, Psalm 73 says God gives the wicked riches to pave their way to hell. So they'll just keep on going. It's a judgment. It's not in your looks. It's not in your health. How do you know God loves you? Because he chose you. And he died for you. You know he loves you. He redeemed you. That's again and again we find that in the New Testament. When Paul is writing and the apostles are writing and they're saying, you need to know who you are. You are loved by God. All things are going to work together for good. You know why? Because Christ died for you. Who's going to bring a charge against you? Christ died for you. He loves you. You are special in his sight. We saw last week, and this is uh, I'll, I'll just bring this up. We talked about particular redemption. And, and the point last week was that God does love the world. There is a universal love for the world, that God in his mercy loves sinful people. We saw last week that Christ is the Savior of all men. That's not my words. That comes straight out of this, the text of Scripture. He is the Savior of all men. Um, but God does not love us the way he loves the world. God loves us in a unique way. A special way. It is demonstrated in marriage. The picture of Christ loving his people is to be pictured in marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I love my wife uniquely and supremely among all the other women in the world. I love her. And Jesus Christ loves his church uniquely and supremely. So we hold these things, they are, you know, it's, it's difficult. D.A. Carson wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It would be very easy if we just said, God loves everybody the same, or God only loves the elect and hates the unelect. I mean, that would be just nice, cut and dried. But when you look at the love of God in Scripture, it is a difficult doctrine. It is complicated. He loves all men, but he does not love all men the same way. He loves his church, his people, uniquely, supremely, in a very special way. How do we know he loves them specially? Because he died for them. He paid for them. Jesus is the Savior of all men. That's what Paul says, but not in the same degree or way. Paul says in his words, Melista, especially to those who believe. Jesus is a unique Savior to believers. He actually saves them from their sins. Jesus didn't die just to make salvation possible for the world. And that's how a lot of, you know, Jesus died so hopefully some people will get saved. That's not the atonement. He came to save his people. That was in the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. He didn't come to just make it possible. He came to save his people. There is a universal aspect in the love of God. There is a universal aspect in the atonement. 
But that universal aspect of God's love for the world and Christ being the Savior of all men, it makes sinners doubly guilty, doubly responsible. They are, uh, they are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are guilty before God. They are without excuse. That love that God has for the world and Christ's atonement didn't secure the salvation. Why didn't? Because of total depravity. Men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. People do not come to God because they don't want to give up their sin. I was just talking with someone today about the pull of sin in our life. And we see people and they're in a situation where they're in a sinful relationship. And, and this person wants to, is thinking, coming to Christ. But this, the sin, they, they don't want to give up the sin. How does a person give up that sin? God comes and does a, a work. We know this, that salvation requires a unique, special grace. Election. Redemption, and what we're going to see tonight is irresistible grace. Okay? We're going to look at the I in the tulip, irresistible grace. We're going to see the grace of God, the great love of God for us in irresistible grace. Now, I've noted several times throughout this study that this acronym of tulip is not the best. In fact, it's sometimes misleading and it can be confusing. When we say total depravity, people say, oh, well, what? No, people aren't totally, I, my neighbor's a nice person. That's not what total depravity means. Uh, uh, limited atonement, I think, can bring a, the, the wrong in, inclinations. It's particular redemption. When we come to irresistible grace, it has the same sometimes confusion about it. Some people assume, as many opponents to the doctrines of grace do, that when we teach God's grace is irresistible, that we're saying his grace can never be resisted. And I've actually heard people who have tried to argue against the doctrines of grace, and they will take this particular doctrine, and they'll give all these examples of God's grace being uh, resisted and say, see, there is no such thing as irresistible grace. That's not what irresistible grace teaches. We do not teach that God's grace is never resisted. In fact, it's resisted all the time. I'm going to give you a couple of play, support for this where we're going to see the grace of God being resisted. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Jesus is giving us the parable of the wedding feast. It is a gospel parable. It's the parable of the kingdom of God. People coming into the kingdom of God. And in the wedding feast, there is an invitation. So this is the, the parable. I'm going to read verses 2 through 5. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. This is a gospel parable. The invitation of God goes out inviting. In particular, this is referencing the Jews. 
that salvation comes to the Jews. Here is your Messiah. Come to the wedding feast. Join it. And they go out, and guess what? They pay no attention to it. One wants to take care of his farm. Another wants to take care of his business. And they don't come. It's resisted. They're unwilling. And even worse, they kill the messengers who brought the invitation. So we see clearly this invitation that was out. God's gracious invitation is extended, and it was resisted. Just a page over to chapter 23, you see the same scenario. The invitation went out to the Jews, to the people of God, the Jewish nation. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Oh, Jesus, looking out over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. Isn't that what just happened in chapter 22? Oh, they kill the messengers. Yep, Jerusalem, you kill the messengers. And the stone and stones those who are sent to it. Look what Jesus says. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. It was resisted. Jesus saying, I, oh, Jerusalem, I would have gathered your children. I would have gathered your children as, a, as just a synonym for the inhabitants of the city. You, I would have gathered your children, but you wouldn't do it. His grace was resisted. One other example I'd like to give you is uh, Acts 7.51. I'm not going to turn there because I'm just going to quote it. But this is when Peter, he's been preaching before the Sanhedrin. And he's about ready to be stoned. They are furious at his message. And he cries out to the Sanhedrin in chapter 7, verse 51. You are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty powerful passage. Resisting the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, that the Holy Spirit is in the world, convicting the world of sin, testifying to the person of Jesus Christ. And Stephen's testimony is that the Holy Spirit was working among the Sanhedrin, convicting them of their sin, testifying to the person of Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Maybe through the miracles of the apostles. I mean, the apostles were healing people. They were seeing people get healed. Maybe through the teaching of the apostles as they took the Old Testament and said, here are the prophecies. Here is Jesus of Nazareth. This is your Messiah. And the Spirit of God was convicting them. They were known. That's, he's the Messiah. And then they resisted the Holy Spirit. They stiffened their neck. No, no, I'm not going to believe. probably is one of the best explanations for something that's very confusing for a lot of people. The teaching about the unpardonable sin. I've counseled with people throughout the years that have just been terrified that they've committed the unpardonable sin. Well, what is the unpardonable sin? Is it some grotesque sin? Is it murder? If, if I do, what is it? Well, Jesus says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, when the Spirit of God is convicting you and 
convincing you of the truth and you refuse it, you reject it, you're blaspheming the witness of the Holy Spirit and there's no pardon for that. There's no, that's the nuclear, I mean, here is God himself witnessing. You're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you refuse it. It's unpardonable. There's no salvation. You you must respond to the Spirit of God. But this shows us the Spirit of God is actively at work in the world. And people reject, people resist the working of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about irresistible grace, it does not teach that God's grace can never be resisted. Because it is. It's in the Bible, it's resisted. In our lives, it's resisted. In our families, it is resisted. There are people who resist the grace of God. They hear the gospel and they don't respond to it. It's precisely because grace is resisted that irresistible grace is required. It's because man resists God's grace that we desperately need irresistible grace. Total depravity requires irresistible grace. So what I want us to do is define the doctrine, first of all. What is irresistible grace? Then I, I want to show you where it's delineated in Scripture. We're going to look at some of the ways that we see the doctrine of uh, irresistible grace expressed in Scripture. And then we're just going to make some practical applications. What does the doctrine of Uh, irresistible grace mean for us in everyday life. I'm going to define for you irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is the effectual call of the Holy Spirit in which he performs a work of grace on the heart of the sinner which inevitably leads the sinner to faith in Christ. Okay? It is the effectual call of the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit performs a work of grace in the heart of the sinner which inevitably leads the sinner to faith in Christ. Now the key word in that definition is effectual call. The word effectual means effective. It means it's a call that accomplishes something. I guess you could say it's a successful. It's, it's success is carried out. Its purpose is accomplished. Now, we're going to back up for just a second here. Last week, we talked about the atonement. I said there is a universal aspect to it. I said there is a universal aspect to the love of God. God loves the world. Christ is the Savior of all men. But just because God is the, loves the world and, and Christ is the Savior of all men, that does not mean that all men are saved. When we come to the word call, being called of God, there is the same phenomenon. There is a universal call that goes out into the world. It's an indiscriminate call. But there is an effectual call that is effective, that is not resisted, that is accomplished, something that the Spirit of God accomplishes in the heart of the elect people. And the irresistible grace is the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to Matthew 22, and I want you to see this 
universal or general call that goes out, and it goes out indiscriminately. There is a call of God where he calls men to believe. Come to the wedding feast. Come for the pardon of sins. That's Matthew 22. The kingdom, let's read that again, the first verse. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Go call them. Well, what happens in that call? It's rejected. Then he goes later on, he said, listen, go out to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Go out and just call anybody and everybody. That is a general call. It's not effectual. It goes out. God says, here is a wedding feast. It is available for you. Come. There is room. Come. But it's resisted. Notice what verse 14 says. Many are called, but few are chosen. There is a call that goes out that's much broader than those that respond. The general call of God goes out, and it can be resisted. And it is resisted. And Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. The effectual call happens to the chosen, to the elect. Those that have been marked out by God for salvation. They respond. So in irresistible grace, You have the Holy Spirit performing a work of grace in the heart of a sinner to bring that sinner to faith in Christ. And that work of grace, the work of grace that happens, you know what it is? There's a a big word for it. It's called regeneration. That's the work of grace. That's the operation of the Holy Spirit on the heart of a sinner that enables them to respond in faith is regeneration. It is a it's a heart operation. It's a heart transplant. It is a complete overhaul, a remaking of the person. It's the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26. Remember God promised that there was going to be a new covenant? And in the new covenant, he said this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you a new heart. In the effectual call, the Spirit of God regenerates the heart of man. Because remember, we have to go all the way back to total depravity. The Bible says that the world is dead in their trespasses and sins. The things of God are of no concern for them. They are not interested. They They don't understand them. And if you are dead, if you are not interested, if your eyes cannot see and you hear things but they don't make sense, you have to have new birth in order to understand. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. That's really the foundation of Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. Remember what he told Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you know, a lot of people read John chapter 3 and it has that famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And they will say this, if you want to be born again, you should believe. But Jesus does not say that. That is not the order that he says. He told Nicodemus, if you want to to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. 
Now, he could have said, if you'll believe, you'll be born again. But that's not what he said. Nicodemus is like, what do you mean, born again? And Jesus said, attributing it to the work, the spirit is like the wind. The wind comes and goes. You don't direct the wind. I don't say, you know, tomorrow I want the wind to go east about 20 miles an hour. You don't do that. And the Spirit of God, it is a sovereign work that he comes and does this operation that you you don't know where it's coming from. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. He must cause you to be born again. And if he causes you to be born again, you can hear the gospel, you can believe the gospel. So regeneration precedes being saved. You've got to be born again, which is an amazing reality. In John 3.10 Nicodemus is having a hard time wrapping his head around being born again. And he says to him, Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know this? Because this is right out of the old covenant. This is Ezekiel 36. I'm going to make a new covenant and I'm going to give you a new heart, a new flesh. I'm going to take out that heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, a tender heart, a heart that is receptive, a heart that can hear. You don't know this, Nicodemus? How can you be a teacher in Israel and not know that this divine operation is necessary? Someone once told me, uh, I can still remember it, that the doctrine of irresistible grace was one of the hardest doctrines for them to grasp, to believe. They said it was just one that they just really had a hard time with. And that, that shocks me a little bit, just because for me, it's one of my favorite. I mean, if you can have a favorite doctrine, this is one of my favorites. Certainly not total depravity, that's not my favorite. Uh, but I, I love election, but... The doctrine of irresistible grace is very precious to me. I love this doctrine, mainly because it is the doctrine that makes our salvation so intensely personal and intimate and experiential. When we talk about these doctrines, so we can all experience total depravity. We know, I'm a sinner, okay, I got that down. But when we come to unconditional election... The Bible tells us that before God created the world, he chose those who were going to be in Christ. I wasn't there. I had no input in that at all. The only input I had was negative. Like, why would you choose him? But God chose me. The Bible tells me, so I I believe that by an article of faith, that, well, the Bible says he chose me before the foundation of the world, but I, I have no experiential realities with that. The Bible tells me that 2,000 years ago, God took my sin and he placed them on Jesus Christ's body and he bore my sin in his body on the tree, 1 Peter chapter 2. That is an incredible reality, but I have been, you know, I wasn't there then. I didn't experience that. I spent two and a half decades of my life not realizing that 2,000 years ago, Christ actually bore all my sins on his body, in his body on the tree. It's an article of faith, I believe it, but when it comes to irresistible grace, this is something that I have experienced. It's happened in time and space, and God has worked in my life, me personally. Not generically, not, not the church, but me individually. You know Isaiah 43, verse 1? God tells Israel, I have called you by name. I know you. You're mine. When you come to the doctrine of irresistible grace, 
Salvation becomes intensely personal. He knows you by name. He has worked upon you individually. He has brought you into the surgery room, and he has performed surgery on you. His hands have worked in your life to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. It is intensely personal, intensely experiential. That as a child at five years old, the Spirit of God knew me and was working on me. Out of all the billions of people in the world, he was working on me, convicting me of my sins. I knew I was a sinner going to hell. And he ordained and he put me in a a situation where a mother told me the gospel and I heard it and I believed it. As much as a five-year-old, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he was working in me. And if you're a believer here, the God of heaven and earth, almighty God, eternal God, if you're a believer, he has worked in your life, in your heart, causing you to be born again and leading you to faith in Christ. That's the doctrine of irresistible grace. Let's see it delineated in Scripture. Where do we see it? You can't look in a concordance under irresistible grace and find any verse in the Bible. And yet, it's all throughout the Bible in so many places. That was the hard thing. I've taught this, man, I don't know how many years now, 20-some years, probably almost a half a dozen different times, and you have all these verses. I'm like, how can you do this in one time? There's so many verses. But we can look at places in Scripture. We can see the doctrine of irresistible grace at work. A couple of places where we can see it is in the special name that's given to believers. One of the things that we are called as believers, you know what we are called? The called ones. The called ones. That's not the general call because there's a lot. Jesus said many are called. But when he says... When the New Testament calls us the called ones, it's talking about the effectual call. You have been the ones that God has effectively, effectually called out. You have responded. He has made you respond. Every time you see the word church appear in the New Testament, it's an indication of irresistible grace. The word church is ekklesia, the called out ones. That's what we are. You think about that? I, I've, I remember preaching in other times. I wished we addressed ourselves this way more often. Good evening, called out ones. It's good to have you here, called out ones, because it helps us to understand who we are. We have been called out by God. We're special. We are loved by God. This is the essence of 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're the called out ones. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, in verse 6, he said that he's the apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. And he says in verse 6, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, loved by God and called to be saints. You're the ones called to belong to Jesus Christ. God has called you out. This goes all the way back to John 17 where the Father gives us to the Son. Here, Son, these are yours. I want you to redeem them, purchase them. You've been called by God to belong to Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Jude 1, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. To those who are called, 
beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That's just how Jude addresses the church. To those of you that are called of God, that's who you are. You have been called out by God himself. That's the effectual call. In Romans 1 and Jude 1, both times the call is linked to the special love of God. Called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome loved by God. Jude, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father. You are, you are loved in a special way. You've been called out by God. Most significantly, we see the doctrine of irresistible grace in operation in, in the gospel ministry. Okay? We see the gospel ministry, the work of irresistible grace taking place. The effectual call, this work of the Holy Spirit comes through the general call of salvation. So remember, there's a general call. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come. Come to the wedding feast. We invite everyone. All are invited. Come. But in that general call, the Holy Spirit brings an effectual call upon the elect. The elect hear that call, and they respond to that call. Turn with me to Galatians. First Corinthians. There we go. I was mixing them all up together. First Corinthians chapter 1. The gospel goes out indiscriminately. People can hear Billy Graham or however the gospel goes out today. Hear sermons. Anybody can get online and hear sermons. People can go to churches and hear the gospel. The gospel goes out and we say, if you are here, would you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? It goes out. I don't look for the elect. It just goes out to everyone. But as it goes out, the Holy Spirit takes that general call and he makes it effectual in the heart of the elect. Colossians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So Paul goes to the city of Corinth and he holds up the banner of the gospel. He preaches the gospel. And people in Corinth say, that's a bunch of hog. That's foolish. Paul says, that's what happens to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, the gospel, what what did you say? If I believe in Christ, I can be forgiven of my sins. Are you kidding? I believe. And we respond to it. He says, to those who are being saved, that message which is foolishness to everyone else, is the power of God. Then drop down to verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. A folly to Gentiles. It's a pretty remarkable statement because there's only two kinds of people in the world, right? One is a Jew and the other is Gentile. So God has crafted a message that is offensive or a stumbling block to everyone in the world, Jew and Gentile. But, verse 24, to those who are called, 
both Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That message goes out and, and the world says, that's a, that's a bunch of hog. They ignore it. They're too busy for it. They're not interested in it. They don't pay attention to it. But to the called, that message is the power of God to salvation. It's effectual for the elect. God uses the gospel to call his elect. The Holy Spirit empowers the gospel message and people are born again through the preaching of the gospel. There's a vivid illustration of this that Jesus himself gives. If you'd like to turn to John chapter 10. We lack insight a lot of times when we read the Bible because our culture is so far removed from that ancient Near East, that's one of the things, if I can promote Chad for a minute, if you can get a chance to go to Chad, it's almost like going back into Bible times. The customs are so similar. Women still go to the, the, uh, the water wells and bring water. You know, I mean, the camels are there. I mean, it's, it's like you're going back almost 2,000 years. That's how far back it is. Things come alive. There are shepherds, and they're herding their goats and all this stuff. So Calvin has repeatedly remarked to me just the similarities of the biblical world to Chad. In the first century, Palestine, it would have been a very common occurrence. There would be shepherds, which was many of the Jews were shepherds. They would have their sheep. They would take their sheep, and everybody has their own flock. They would take their sheep out of the city for the day, and they would graze. They'd bring their sheep back into the city, and they would put them in a communal pen. And then the next morning, the shepherd would come, and all the sheep are all mixed up together, and he whistles or has his tune, and he calls out his sheep, and he starts heading out of town, and literally those sheep know which shepherd is theirs and which is not, and his sheep follow him right out of the city with him. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. Sheep are not the brightest sticks in the tool shed, but they know who their master is. I've seen that with my, my brother. He's raised cows and had some sheep, and he had a special call that when he called, they came. I could have probably done that all day long, and they just look at me and chew you know, and stare at me. But when he, do, he called, they knew, oh, we're getting something. They follow him. So you take that and go to John chapter 10. And it comes alive. Truly I say to you, verse 1, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So the shepherd would have no reason to jump into the fold and try to rustle up sheep. That would be a thief to do that. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeepers open. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. In the gospel, Jesus' voice goes out, and his sheep hear it, and they say, That's my Savior. And they respond to it. And he calls them out, and they follow him. Drop down a few more verses to verse 25. We know that the Jews rejected Jesus. 
And they're taunting him. Verse 23 and 24, they're like, tell us, keep us in, are you the Christ or not? Look what Jesus responds to them in verse 25. I've told you, you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You have seen the works that I have done. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. That's, Jesus did not say that they were not his sheep because they didn't believe. He said, you didn't believe because you're not my sheep. You don't know my voice. You don't listen to my voice. But my sheep, when they hear my voice, when it goes out in the gospel, they follow. They know that's my voice. They know that's me calling them. What a picture of irresistible grace. I know that's... This. Why do you know? How does a believer know that... And I like to pose... I mean, there are a lot of salvations out there. Do this and this and don't do this and don't do that. What made you hear the gospel and say, no, that's right? The Holy Spirit did. The voice, that's the voice you follow. One other example. Acts 16. There are numerous examples I could give you of irresistible grace. I could give you Paul and how he was converted as an example. But Acts 16, Paul is preaching in Philippi. And uh, in verse uh, 13 and 14, I hope you'll look at it. He goes into Philippi and they decide they want to find a crowd where they can preach to. So they go down to the river and they find a group of women there. And so Paul starts preaching to these group of women. He starts preaching to them the gospel. And I absolutely love this. Verse 14. Well, we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper, worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Irresistible grace is the effectual call of the Holy Spirit who performs a work of grace on the heart of the sinner. The Lord opened Lydia's heart and she responded to what Paul had said. There are other women there. They presumably did not respond, but Lydia did. The general call went out. He preached the gospel to all the women, but it was effectual in Lydia because the Lord opened her heart. That's irresistible grace. The gospel invitation goes out to many people, and they reject it. They're unwilling. They're obstinate. They're full of excuses. One's too busy. Another doesn't care. Grace is resisted constantly. Resisted grace requires irresistible grace. Okay? Because total depravity is true, that men are dead in their trespasses and sins, they're not willing to come to Christ. Irresistible grace is required to draw men to Christ. I want you to think of an alternative. What irresistible grace means is that God does not work in people the same way or the same degree. I want you to just think a minute about an alternative what if irresistible grace is not true? What would be the alternative? 
I'm going to read to you a portion of my sermon that I preached almost 10 years ago to this day. And as I read it again, I realized I can't really say it any better than that. So I'm going to just say it again. The alternative to irresistible grace. The alternative to irresistible grace is that God calls all men to be saved and leaves the the determination to man alone. That's one alternative. The gospel call goes out. Everybody is free to decide. A gospel call without irresistible grace means God wouldn't coerce a man against his will. Without irresistible grace, he would never woo or exercise more influence on one over another. For his desire is for all men to be saved must be equal. A gospel without irresistible grace may be a fine thing for children who can be easily persuaded. And it may be an acceptable gospel for reasonable and nice adults. The end result, though, would be a church filled with only little children and nice people. In fact, a gospel without irresistible grace is a horrible gospel for sinners. How could a mind deeply darkened by sin benefit from such a gospel? What kind of hope would a depraved, hardened, spiritually callous sinner have with a gospel without irresistible grace? A gospel without irresistible grace is a powerless gospel. Let me just give you a couple of ways to apply this, just make some application of the doctrine. First of all, irresistible grace is why we must strive to always preach the pure gospel. Because it's the gospel in which the elect hear the voice of the Savior. If it's not the true gospel, the elect will not hear it. They don't, they're not going to pay attention to it. They hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must make sure that we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's death, burial, and resurrection. Put your faith in Christ alone. The sheep hear the voice of Christ in the gospel, this message of a crucified and buried and raised Messiah. Paul was very concerned that his message was pure. You know what? He wanted, he wanted the supernatural draw of the Holy Spirit to be evident in his gospel message. That's why he did not want to uh, add accoutrements to it. You read, I'm not going to do it because of time, but you read 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And he says, I don't, I'm not going to come to you in fancy speeches. 
because I want your faith to rest in a demonstration of the power of God and not the power of my oratory or my slick advertising. We don't want to embellish the gospel. There are churches today that don't want to talk about blood because people think blood's offensive. That's embellishing the gospel. And if you don't talk about blood, the elect aren't going to hear the voice. We don't cloak the gospel with glamour and glitz, producing church services that I put here look more like a production from Branson, Missouri. I think Paul would soundly repudiate that. There would be too much temptation to think that the power was in our wonderful production rather than in the supernatural power of the living God drawing men with a foolish message. Sheep don't respond to entertainment. They respond to the gospel. Okay? That's why we must be sure and preach the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, irresistible grace is the treasure that we have as messengers of the gospel. Because the power of the gospel is not in my presentation. It is not in my ability to come up with all the perfect arguments, but simply be faithful to the gospel message. The the power of irresistible grace is a treasure for us, knowing that it's not relying upon me and how I deliver it, or if I get it completely right, but if I am faithful and just presenting the gospel, God is the power in the gospel, not me. I'm not going to turn there, but I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through about 7. And it says, Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. God is the one who in creation said, let light shine out of darkness. And Paul says that is the power at work in the gospel where light shines out of darkness. That's the treasure we have. It's an irresistible grace. When I, many of you, you've heard this story if you've listened to tapes. But when I, when I think of irresistible grace, I always think of the worst sermon that I ever preached in my entire life. And, uh. It was way back. I mean, I'm sure I've preached a lot of bad sermons after that, but this was like the worst I remember specifically. It was a Wednesday night like this. It was teaching from Hebrews chapter 11, the, the, the uh, great faith chapter, and I was preaching about God calling Abraham out of Ur, okay? And some of you have heard me, but, oh, it was a terrible message. And to make it even worse, a guy that we had been praying for for years for his salvation, Steve Hardigan. He's one of our ushers today. We had been praying for Steve for a year. A a guy in our church had been witnessing to him for even longer than that. Out of nowhere, Steve Hardigan comes to this message that is the worst message I've ever preached in my entire life. I saw Steve sitting back there, and if you've ever had to speak publicly, you know it. My body broke out into a cold sweat. I was so angry at God. Why am I preaching about God calling Abraham out of Ur and Steve Hardigan is here? 
And I went through that message, and I just wanted to get it done. I, was, I didn't even want to look up. I was embarrassed. I just went through it, going through it as fast as I could. Amen. We're done. Close it up. And then I want to go talk to Steve Hartigan. Jack and I talked with Steve Hartigan, and as we talked to him, we saw him born again. I, mean, I saw his eyes go from dark to light. It was, it was remarkable. But the thing that was so humbling to me is he went home that night. He got on his cell phone. He called Daryl, who had been witnessing, and he said, Daryl, God called me out of Ur today. <laughs> he actually heard my sermon. He actually understood the worst sermon ever that I've ever preached. And I, and I, had, I was like, Lord, I am so sorry. You, it's not me. It's your power. If God can save somebody about a message about God calling Abraham out of Ur, he, and he can use me, a terrible messenger, the power is in the gospel. It's in God. It's not you. So when you go out and you share it with your neighbors, you share it with your children, and you feel like, oh, I don't know if I'm capable of this. You're not. I wasn't capable. I was a total flop. But it's not on me. That's the treasure I have in earthen vessels, the powers of God. Okay? That's the gospel. Two more quickly. Irresistible grace is why we pray for lost people. If there is no such thing as irresistible grace, you tell me why we pray for lost people. It doesn't make sense. If God calls all men equally and there's no difference and, and he just gives the message out and he leaves all men to determine, then there should never be any prayer request that God would save lost people. Because it's not up to God, it's up to the individual. It's because of irresistible grace. We pray, oh God, in your mercy, draw this person, open their eyes, bring conviction of sin. Oh God, save them because the power is of God. It's not of the individual. They're lost and they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Irresistible grace is the only thing that separates you and I from the vilest sinner with a sentence of eternal damnation hanging over their heads. It's only the irresistible grace of God who called us, who did heart surgery on us, who opened our eyes, who caused us to be born again so that we could believe the gospel. So, irresistible grace is why we sing songs like Amazing Grace. As we were singing that, the refrain there, he, in teaching us, it's the grace that taught me. That's, that's right out of Scripture. All those who come to me will be taught by God. That's irresistible grace. Not everyone is taught by God. God leaves men to go their own ways. The only difference between eternal life and eternal death is God's powerful Irresistible grace. So, Matt, I think it would be appropriate if we could just go singing Amazing Grace as we wrap up Irresistible Grace.